This episode is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne. Decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. And welcome to the Move Me podcast with me, Julie Reynolds. Today it's another rewind, this time it's back to 2018 with world renowned bass player, songwriter, comedian, sometimes actor Guy Pratt. So, where do you start with Guy Pratt? He's played with almost everybody. And I first saw Guy when he was appearing at the Adelaide Fringe doing his stand-up show. I don't know if endearing was what he was going for. Probably not. But aside from being extremely funny, from that appearance, he was straight on my hit list to chat to. You know when there's just something about someone? Well, that's Guy Pratt. Now, I could give you the long list of people he's played with. Google him. It's easier. But here's just a snippet. He was in Ice House around the time when they toured with David Bowie. That was on the Sirius Moonlight tour. He played with Pink Floyd, also David Gilmore and Nick Mason, Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, Michael Jackson, Debbie Harry, also with Michael Hutchins on his solo album, and many, many more. And if that's not enough, he's done a heap of film work too, including Last Action Hero, Hackers, Johnny English Reborn, and Dick Tracy with Madonna. Speaking of Madonna, she may have also jagged a date with Guy, so the rumour mill goes, and we'll find out whether that was just a rumour in this episode. So, say hello to Guy Pratt on the Move Me podcast. Hi Guy, welcome to the show. I suppose the first thing I want to talk to you about is your book. It's called My Base and Other Animals and it's not really a story about you, but you're in it. So can you tell us the premise? Yeah, I kind of figured that as I was easing into middle age and responsibility that uh, sort of crazy stuff would stop happening. So I just wanted to kind of get it all down before I forgot it all. But actually, as it turns out, there's been plenty of craziness in the last Since. 12 years. So you've got about three more books left in you, Guy Pratt. <laughs> I've got a copy of the book. I got it when you did the Word Festival in, oh, I think it was 2013 in, yeah, in uh, Adelaide. Was, yeah. was it tw- no, 2014? 2014. No, it, was, I can't, no, it might have been 2013, you're right. But it was a while ago. It was, yeah. the, it was the one that you did with Leo Sayer. Gary Kemp. Yes. And, um, Tasha Coates. Uh, and yeah, which I know was brilliant. It was great fun. You guys all talking your war stories. <laughs> I, I think it's you are a natural storyteller. And Gary Kemp, he's a um, sometimes music collaborator with you, isn't he? Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet. Oh, well, yeah, we've actually, I mean, we're actually just embarking on quite the most exciting project I've been involved in for years. What is that? I don't know if you've heard about this. We started a band with Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. And we're basically playing all the Pink Floyd stuff that no one plays. All the early Sid Barrett stuff. We're doing a full-on psychedelic freak-out show. We just did a few gigs here and, and the response has been nuts. I mean, five-star reviews in all the papers. We've now got a sell-out European tour in September. But what was interesting was because a lot of people were going, Gary Kemp, really, with Pink Floyd. And actually... The parallels are quite extraordinary because Gary was in a band, which is basically the house band of the club at the centre of a cool London youth movement, which is exactly what Pink Floyd were. What was the club? The uh, well, well, with Pink Floyd, it was the UFO club. It was Spandau Ballet. It was Blitz. Did you go and see them as a young man? Or I you're... didn't, actually. I, no, I was caught up in the mod revival, which was really nice. Because I remember I did get invited. Our guitarist's brother used to do the cloakroom at Blitz when Boy George wasn't doing it. And uh, and he, I did get invited. And, uh, yeah, I, if I had gone, I might have sort of put on the tea towel and everything could have been very different. Your life path, 
I think you were destined to be in blazing lights because you're only like 16 when you you took off and went over to the USA and you and a mate traveled from coast to coast at 16. Yeah. I know that seems nuts because my son is 16 now and there's kind of two like there's and there's no way he can, I mean we live in Brighton he can just about get to London on his own and there's part of me think god we were so much more independent back then but there's also a part of me that thinks Mum, what the hell were you doing well, letting me do that? Exactly. What did you do? Come home and go, Mum, I think I might go to America. Or who are you going with? Barry. All right, well, have a nice time. How long are you going yeah, for? Much. Yeah. <laughs> for a 16-year-old, that must have opened your eyes up to a lot of things. Yeah, it was. It was especially because we went to New York. And, and New, this is 1978, when New York was officially the scariest town on earth. You know, they just invented mugging. And um, <laughs> I mean, it was basically, you know, I mean, the way you thought of New York then is how people think of Sao Paulo now. Did you know that? Is that was that the attraction? Yeah. Or did I, you just I, I, rock I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a, a recurring theme with you because I've heard you, and we'll get back to this story as well, playing with David Gilmore. It was a little bit terrifying for you to meet him in the first place. Yeah, totally. Is that where you live? Is that what you like? Because on stage for other people is terrifying, but for you, you could probably have a shower up there. You look that comfortable. Yeah, no, well, it's, yeah, although, I mean, it, it depends. Being in a band is, is incredibly comfortable. Uh, doing stand-up is still terrifying. <laughs> and it, well, yeah, and I am. I mean, it is basically, because all I'm really doing is what most musicians do down the pub, really, because, um, you know, all musicians have stories. Then there's the Australian story as well, Guy. Only 19 years old, a very accomplished bass player, Guy Pratt, heads to Australia, starts knocking around with the blokes from Ice House. How did that happen? That, yeah, that was a funny one. That really was a funny one. That yeah. was because Ivor was putting a new band together. And I think, I think it's because Australia was still very much meat and two veg pub rock back then, wasn't it? The Angels and all that. Yeah. And because Ivor was very sort of new wave and pretentious and he couldn't, I don't think he could find a, a bass player over there who sort of played the sort of stuff he wanted and also what could be more pretentious than having an English bass player? I just happened to, I knew so because I basically was hanging around record co- company offices trying to blag free records to go and sell at that point. And there was a guy called uh, Laurie, an Australian guy. A lot of Australian people worked in the music business over here back then. And um, someone heard about uh, and there was someone who was a friend of Ice House's manager. They said that we're looking for an English bass player. And I think Laurie's thought, he said, well, I've basically got this bloke hanging around my office I could really do with someone getting him out of here. <laughs> so, yeah, so I came over and, and I met him and um, got on really well. So, and it was, so, yeah, that was it. I was on the plane to Australia. That's incredible. And there's a big difference between a pub tour in the UK and in Australia, isn't there? There's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> because you must yeah, have been so, thinking, what, so, yeah. pubs? <laughs> Pub gigs in England hold between 12 and 47 people, and they're where you go to see your boyfriend or girlfriend's brother's punk bands and have lager poured down your back. <laughs> Whereas pub gigs in Australia hold, tend to hold 5,000 people, and they're where you go to see you too. Exactly. And the attitudes in Australia are a little bit different, aren't they? There's nothing, very, very different. There's nothing yeah. like a QE, mate, cover. How are you doing? Especially in the 80s, 80s Australia. <laughs> but yeah, well, I'd say the one I always remember was that, yeah, because people used to come to the gigs and get completely twatted, which meant you only ever had two responses, which were, you're the best bloody thing I've ever seen anywhere, ever, mate. Or they had no idea you'd been on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did actually once at a gig in Sydney. I think it was at Kinsailers. No, Kins- um, no the, what's it, the one down in the Coogee Bay Hotel. Uh, well, I had a guy get really pissed off with me because I wouldn't come down off the stage in the middle of a song 
to give him a light. <laughs> <laughs> so that must have been a little bit of a shock for you, or, or did it you was just? Go- it was fantastic, but also because the places we were playing. I mean, I've, I've played every RSL and leagues club there is. It was fantastically exciting. I mean, it was brilliant. And, you know, Australia was... I mean, back then, it was a long way away. People didn't really go there so much. didn't get so much. I mean, it's kind of what... I think the idea of the tribute band basically came from Australia, didn't it? Because so few bands used to come there. I mean, there was this thing where the Rolling Stones would go and do a world tour, then make a film of it, and send the film to Australia. Of course, since the 80s. I mean, since the mid-80s, you know, everyone's there. Simple Minds, they really had quite a, a part to play in the development of Ice House. Do you remember what's funny? Is that, you remember, there's a, what, it's quite funny looking back. Is, you know, there was a time in the mid-80s where Simple Minds and you 2 were neck and neck and it could have been either one of them. Which one would you have put your money on? You 2 always had, the, they always had more scope to them. Well, I they prefer were... Simple Minds. I mean, New Gold Dream is actually... Oh, actually, I was talking about that the other day. So New Gold Dream is actually one of the most influential albums for me as a bass player ever. Bass playing on that record is phenomenal. After punk, because everything... You know, you couldn't really listen to anything apart from reggae. You couldn't listen to what you were doing. And, um, and everything got to... So suddenly, everything... We all just got completely into the funk and disco and African music. It was a big African music thing in England around sort of the turn of the end of the 70s as well. It, was, it got, all got really good. Everything, we were all very, very open-minded and very experimental in listening to everything. It was like David Byrne making albums of, you know, Brian Eno. And I was quite surprised when I went to Australia to find sort of just how kind of rockist it was. So when I think about it, it was a, it was a great time because on all those tours, looking back, all the people who used to support us were hunters and collectors, the church... Loads of, uh, you know, there are loads of those bands. Very good. I'm a big fan of your book, Guy, with all the rock stories. I'm really drawn to a photo of a very young Guy Pratt with David Bowie and the drummer from Chic. That's right. It's Tony Thompson and Carmine Rojas. And, uh, yeah, well, that was because we'd been, Ice House had been asked to, we supported him on the Serious Moonlight tour for just a few of his shows. There was a really big competition. It's when Let's Dance had come out, and of course, he was just completely world-conquering. And so there was this big thing of who could get, who could get you know, onto Bowie's coattails. And so In Excess managed to get Nile Rodgers to produce one song. But then we got on the tour. It was kind of, it was quite funny. It was very, it was, there was quite a sort of blur oasis thing between us and In Excess. Oh, really? Oh, well, I yeah. can see that. I can see that. <laughs> To list the people that you've played with, it would be easier and quicker to say who you didn't play with. It goes from Echo and the Bunnymen, Robert Palmer. Did you live in his house? No, I, I, he invited me out to um, the Bahamas and I stayed with him for like, I was meant to be two weeks, ended up being about six. Oh, there you go. So that's almost living with him. The Smiths, yeah. you're in that band for a couple of weeks? I was in the Smiths, it was a week. A week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't think you did anything wrong, did you? I did sort of do something wrong, which now, actually, I'm quite pleased about. We'd had a big party night, and I'd, I'd gone to bed. We were rehearsing at this place out in the middle of the country, and I'd gone to bed at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and then I just thought, you know what, I don't think I've finished. <laughs> and I'm sure Johnny feels the same, you know, Johnny Marr. Ma, yep. my mate. And I went up to his room, also, I thought, and started banging on the door saying, come on, Johnny, get up. And, uh, of course, it was Morris's room. Uh, and, of course, Morris had gone to bed straight after Dad's army. So, and he just got up got the train back to London and I wasn't in the Smiths anymore. Oh. No, it's fine. Another notable <laughs> is Madonna. Now, did you go on a date with her to go and see George Michael or am I wrong? It was sort of, it wasn't <laughs> really a date. I mean, she invited everyone. She invited the whole band to go. And everyone, but she, everyone was so scared of her. She used to really crack whip. I mean, she was brilliant. 
And I was, yeah, I was the only person who said yes, so it was just me and her going to the gig. So it did sort of feel a little bit like a date. It might have been. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although, and when we walked, it was George Michael on the Faith Tour at the LA Sports Arena, you know, absolute ground zero showbiz event in the world that night um, with Madonna. And we walked in arm in arm through the back and there wasn't one bloody photographer. <laughs> What's going on with that? And it wasn't in the times of taking selfies on your phone either. No, exactly. Although, I, you know, that's a funny thing. I was thinking of all the people I worked with, when I was down for, it never occurred to me to take my picture with people. I always just thought that was a naff thing to do. And that, now I look back and think, God, that's, that's so annoying. It's so stupid. My thing was sort of, I kind of thought it was, that's what fans do. If you're working with someone, it, it seems an odd thing to want. Now I find it weird, the whole selfie thing, whenever I do anything, I mean, it's quite funny when you go through Facebook and there's just all these pictures of me looking like an idiot with my arm around someone. You also... Did you co-write Ain't No Doubt with Jimmy Nail? I did. I co-wrote it and produced it. (laughs) Another name that obviously jumps out is Michael Jackson. The obvious question was, was he a bit quirky? (laughs) Uh, Well, I never met him. Was he? I mean, I never actually met him. Uh, He was in the studio once telling his giant bodyguard what to tell me. And I had to, we all had to pretend that this bodyguard actually knew what Michael wanted, even though Michael was telling him what to say from behind the mixing desk. What did you think of that? Did you play with it or did you just play along with them? I wasn't really thinking that professionally. I was just like, bloody hell, Michael, what am I doing in a Michael Jackson session? You know, and what did you that. play on? Earth song. But I do, I'm incredibly proud of the record. I think it's actually one of the best bass lines I've ever come up with. Even though what I did it was I actually, I kind of stole the bass line from Bad because I figured that Michael would like it. He just wouldn't know why. Because <laughs> he's already heard it. But not in quite <laughs> in that way. And... You were playing with Dream Academy too? Yeah. That's a, a connector to Pink Floyd. That's how I first met David, because he was producing them. In fact, I met, I knew Nick sort of round and about from West London, but in fact, when Icehouse had our one hit in England, Hey Little Girl, we were on this TV show, now legendary, very fondly remembered TV show called The Tube. They, they were always trying out new presenters, and Nick was actually the presenter on it, who, and he introduced us really, really badly, actually. He, he only lasted on the show for a couple of weeks. And so he came back down to London, because the show was done in Newcastle. He was, came down, back down to London on us with the train, and him and I got chatting. It says we knew loads of people in common, all that sort of thing. And so he said, hey, do you want to come and play for my band? And so I did. So it actually came through Icehouse. All roads lead back to Australia, Guy uh, Pratt. Yeah, yeah. So, no, so much comes from my house. You know, I'm eternally grateful to Ivor. Now, you've had to choose between Roxy Music and playing with David Gilmore too. I did. How uh, do you do yeah, that? But, uh, that was a yeah, Live Eight. You wait for one massive international <laughs> charity appearance with a legendary band and then two come along at once. Because we'd been, I'd, I, I was already playing for Roxy Music the, and the, I, the, the Floyd thing, we didn't think it was going to happen at all. And then when it did... Yeah, David asked me if I'd come and play, but I don't think I would have been playing. I, I mean, I only I would have been. I'm kind of glad I didn't, because it was all about the four of them. That was the whole point, and I just would have been stuck at the back. And, and would have said, so I'm kind of glad that no one's ever had seen that picture of me at the back while Roger does what. <laughs> oh, and I also heard somewhere that David Gilmore likes you around not just because you're an awesome bass player, but it's for your wit. Uh, yes, well, that's actually, that's because he gave me this one, when I started doing the stand-up thing, I asked him if I could have a quote, and he gave me this very, very lovely quote, so that bass players are ten a penny, but a good wit is hard to find, so we hired him. There you go. And that was just him being very sweet. I mean, yes, he does. I mean, we're really, we're really good mates. Our, you know, our kids are best mates. We've been you know, years ago on holiday together and stuff. So That brings us to your stand-up. I've seen you do stand-up here in Australia. You performed at Adelaide Fringe a couple of times. Oh, yeah. 
I love that, by the way. I love doing Adelaide Fringe. I was at Gluttony, yeah. yeah. I was on way too late. I'm probably only still alive because my show was so late that I couldn't start drinking till really quite late. There you go. There's always a silver lining. Yeah. So stand-up's a different animal, obviously, to performing on stage with a band. You might have yes. 10, 15 people around you. You've got road crew. Well, the big difference is that with most of the gigs I do is that it's kind of a done deal. I mean, if you get on stage with David Gilmore and play Wish You Were Here, you've got a pretty good idea of how it's going to go yeah. down. Get on stage with Brian Ferry, you play Love Is The Drug, you've got a pretty good idea of how it's going to go down. You know, whereas with stand-up, you don't know. You just don't know. Every time is completely no. You could completely die on your ass. I bet you haven't, though. Uh, it's once or twice. It was their fault. Not, only, not, not <laughs> always through my own fault. <laughs> exactly. It was the wrong crowd, a bad crowd tonight. Well, no, I did have one. I had a gig at Marrakesh once, and I turned and the place was absolutely rammed and heaving. I think, God, this is amazing. A bit surprising. But it turns out that actually what had happened was because he hadn't really been selling tickets, the manager of the place had gone out on social media and told basically every member of the French expat community that Pink Floyd were playing in his hotel. Oh. So when it turned out that I clearly didn't have a pig or a mirror ball or any very long guitar solos, everyone was just, what are we doing here? <laughs> We oh, must talk Lord. very loudly so he does not interrupt our dinner. You get through it. You get Character through it. Forming. Where would we have seen you on film? Well, I'm not really an actor, and I'm actually a very bad actor. When I was doing <laughs> music for TV and film, anything I did the music for, I used to ask if I could have a little sort of Hitchcockian walk-on part in. And so, actually, there was one thing that I was really proud of, which was really big in Australia, if my checks are to be believed, anyway, which was a series called The Young Person's Guide to Becoming a Rock Star. And I had coached the band, and I wrote half the songs, and did the score, and I had an acting part in that. I played an A&R man. <laughs> which you would know a lot about. Are they as wild as, as what they uh, portrayed in movies? No, not anymore. There aren't any left. Well... It's like a whole... Yeah, it's all gone. I mean, basically, because... It's they're just people have got to work really hard to find the money. So, they, so the things that people tend to do are much, much more commercial. And so the whole idea of the music business has kind of gone. It's just become, seems to me it's become another wing. It's just gone back to how it used to be before rock and roll, which is it's just showbiz. I mean, being a singer, being in a band or being in a TV show are the same thing. But also, I mean, the, the, the thing is, because music isn't really the place to be in the way it was when I was young, it means that someone like my son is doing it because he's really, he just really, really cares about music. For me, there was a whole mad gravy train. The music business was this, like, insane theme park, and all you had to do was get over the fence. Once you were inside, and it's not like that at all now. Music has now kind of become, well, I describe it, it's like theatre, in that there's, theatre has always been that there's a couple of billionaires at the top, and everyone else is starving and just doing it for love. And that's what music's like now. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. It's easy for me to say, no, I bought my house. Correct. You've got your island and a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the fact that there just was so much money, you know. But it's, and it's literally just because of this blip of where technology was for 40 years in terms of records and stuff. There was just so much money to be made. Because, you know, and it's a complete anomaly. Musicians have never been rich, ever, before. And so, but, so we grew up in a world where you assume people who do music will be rich. See, this is where Australia found, was found itself very ahead of the game. Was, again, because there wasn't that, because there just wasn't the amount of people in the country to make yourself a millionaire from selling records, so that everyone made all their money playing live, which is why everyone, I mean, music in Australia has always been live. It's always been about a live thing. And, and now everyone else has sort of caught up and, you know, realised that that's actually where all the action is. But it's quite interesting how Australia's, you know, all, all Australian bands are completely geared to playing live and, you know, good on them. Guy Pratt, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Brilliant. It was my pleasure. 
how great is Guy Pratt? And if you're looking for his book, My Base and Other Animals, or any of his socials, I'll put the link up on my Facebook page and Instagram page. Just go to the Move Me podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back again next week. And a big shout out to our show producer, Audio Lemonade. See ya.